Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, this podcast has become your place to find broken and beautiful companions for your everyday pilgrimage. In season one, we met 12 Christian witnesses, from Francis of Assisi and Benedict of Scholastica to Mother Teresa and Dorothy Day, each living out their faith in different times, places, and circumstances. I can't wait to dive into season two with a whole different cast of Sinner Saints and conversations with new special guests. Until then, I hope you'll enjoy this bonus episode with author Carrie Wallace as we trade stories of our favorite saints. I'm glad you're here with us. Thrilled to welcome Carrie Wallace uh, as my special guest today on the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. She's speaking to me from her apartment in Brooklyn, being assisted by her dog Bandit. Carrie Wallace is the author of a wonderful new book called Stories of the Saints Bold and Inspiring Tales of Adventure, Grace, and Courage. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to talk with you. Um, so let's begin with the fundamental question. What is a saint? Well, I think one of the things that became really clear to me as I was writing this is that saints aren't people who are um, moving through the world with perfect certainty about anything or even a particular sense that they're doing the right thing most of the time or even at all. <laughs> so so some of the things that I highlighted, I'm not sure how far you've gotten in the book, but one of the things I think is really important is a moment where um, Joan of Arc, right before she's about to be executed, actually takes it all back and gets a brief reprieve and then comes back and says, no, I know this is what God said to me and you can do whatever you want. I'm, I'm going to stick with that. But I think those moments of wavering, those very human moments were some of the most important things to me about the saints, but they are that said, you know, they're just like us. And also in some ways they're very different from us. And I think the ways in which they're different have to do with them having a very strong sense that there is a world beyond this one that matters more than this one. And I think ironically, that sense gives them the ability to make profound changes in this world. Yeah, that is beautiful. Well, I'm interested to know a little more about your religious background, uh, the tradition of your childhood. Did saints play a role for you as a child? Well, so I was a little Quaker growing up who was Ah. sent to Catholic school. (laughs) Um, which was a very interesting experience. And I also loved, I was perhaps even a little pagan. I loved the um, stories of the Greek and Norse pantheons. And I remember in third grade talking to my Catholic school teacher and making the argument that maybe, you know, of course, God was God and he was the big God, but maybe these other gods had been able to stick around because their stories were so wonderful that I thought, you know, it would be great if they hadn't just been extinguished by the advent of Christianity. 
And I think that that story is actually pretty important because it was those books of myths that I was thinking about and the way that those stories connected with me as a child that I wanted to imitate in telling these stories. Um, And I think the reason that I was hoping that that pantheon had survived was because I didn't know those stories of adventure and grace and courage in my own tradition. So that's part of what I was trying to get across in this book. Oh, I think it really comes through as I read your stories. It it did, all the adventure and all the appeal came through. So you've done a beautiful job with these stories. Well, how has your understanding of saints developed over the years? Now that you're grown up, how do the saints uh, play in your own life? I think I can speak mostly to just the experience of writing this book was the deepest dive that I ever did into sort of the whole realm of saints rather than just being interested in one or two. And what was interesting to me about that was that as a Protestant, I think if you're if you're raised Protestant in America, you don't have a sense of the broad sweep of church history. So you, you kind of think it was Jesus and then there's Martin Luther. <laughs> And and Billy Graham, and here we are, right? So for those first 1,500 years, really, the saints belonged to everybody. And so it was a wonderful thing for me to find all of this history that had never been taught to me as my own history in the lives of the saints, who really are also my spiritual ancestors as well, not just the spiritual ancestors of, of people who have a more robust tradition of saints like Catholics or Orthodox. Yeah, the more stories of the saints that I read, the more I love them and the more I I feel like there's space for everyone in the Christian faith, uh, no matter what your personality or your time and your place. Well, I'm interested to know in selecting 70 saints, you have really outdone yourself. Were all of these saints canonized by an institutional church? And if you were to go beyond the bounds of that official recognition, that canonization, who would you add to the list? Sure. So yes, all these saints have been canonized by some institutional church, but we were really looking for, we actually started out with a hundred and then culled it down to 70. And it was really simply sort of like a historical popularity contest. We really wanted to collect the best loved saints through history. But of course, saints are not, not without some cultural inflection, right? So so there are distinctly some people who probably qualify as saints who haven't been canonized by any particular church. But people who I look to as really important to my faith include um, Thomas Merton and um, Jacques Lucerin, who I am probably mangling his last name, but he was a young man who lost his sight actually about 10 years before World War II and still managed to be an incredibly important figure in the French resistance and um, managed to survive a concentration camp largely through singing and poetry and the importance of art in those moments, even in these really terrible moments, and has, I think, really important things to say to us about sight and what true sight means. But I think the truest answer to that question is that I suspect that that most of the saints, we won't ever know their names. I suspect that only a few people know about their sainthood. Um, And I dedicated the book to my father, and I think he fits that description. Yeah, yeah. Well, from a a young reader's point of view, in this book, it's described as for ages eight and up. I mean, I'm completely riveted and will be giving it to everyone I know, uh, young and old. Um, But from a young reader's point of view, how are these saint stories different from fairy tales or, as you said, Greek myths? Yeah, I, well, I think that they're true, fundamentally. And I think, actually, in the introduction, I talk a little bit about what do we mean by true. And um, some of these stories are clearly 
probably not scientifically verifiable, right? And maybe not even historically accurate. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I didn't make anything up in this book. Everything in this book comes either from history or from tradition. And it's very interesting when you dive into the original sources, even the Catholic Church is not keeping the official record of a saint's life. And even the first people who wrote these stories down are not actually interested in history as modern Western people would be thinking about history. They're not trying to prove this really happened. What they're trying to prove is this person was a saint. So hagiography has totally different concerns than history. But uh, this is not an answer for a young reader. <laughs> but, but I do have an answer for a young reader, which is that when young readers read stories about fairy tales or about myths, there's sort of this, this very bittersweet thing that happens in coming of age where we lose the enchantment and we stop, we stop being afraid of the monsters under our bed or we start being afraid of different kinds of monsters. But we also stop thinking that the trees might be full of fairies, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that these stories are different because the, the fundamental truth that they're trying to tell, which is that there is a God who cares for us and answers our prayers and is involved in the minutia of our lives is true. And that enchantment only grows um, as we move through life. That only becomes truer as opposed to fairy tales and the Greek myths, which we eventually have to let go of believing. Mm. And how incredible to think of the courage of the martyrs. You know, as an adult, they still challenge me very, very much their bravery, their willingness to die for, like you said, this other reality, the world beyond this one, the God that we cannot see, you know, for the needs of others, for the needs of the world. So these are very, very strong stories. Well, Carrie, if you were reading this book and you've got 70 different saints here and you're reading to a child at bedtime and they were afraid of thoughts and threats known and imagined, which saint stories might you choose to read to her or to him tonight? Yeah, I think this, this may be a cop out, but I think any of them and I think actually all of them could be useful. And, and I actually think that what's important about them is not any one story, but the witness of all of them together. And I think one of the things that's important about this book is that these these are stories that very much like the fairy tales address the hardness and the unfairness and the uncertainty of the world and that tell you that you won't always get a happy ending. I think a lot of what we tell children is that being moral makes sense and will lead to good outcomes. And that's actually not the record of the stories of the saints. And I think that that's an important message for kids to hear. You know, I think it's also important for them to have a sense that there's order to the world and that they're safe. But I, I think that they can see for themselves from a very early age that that's not the only thing going on in the world. And I think that these stories address those hard truths and also give a way forward of how to not lie down in hopelessness, but how to continue moving forward and even doing good in the face of those realities. Uh, I was so moved by your retelling of uh, Mother Teresa's story. And I turned to that one because I was so curious to know how you would handle her story. And we know now after her death that she struggled with her faith. She had this incredible sense of absence of God's silence, I should yeah. say. And yet you tell it in such a compassionate way. I mean, just for listeners, tell us a little bit about how you tell her story. Well, so I start out telling the general outlines of her story, which is that she felt a call to go to the poorest of the poor in Calcutta and left everything behind and went out into the streets with absolutely nothing to begin her ministry, which wound up being international and involving all kinds of people. 
but she had in the beginning of her life, a really strong sense that God was speaking to her and pleased with her and involved in the day-to-day details of her life. And at the end of her life, she felt like she had almost no experience of that from God at all. She said, in fact, that nobody knows that all this time I've been hiding a broken heart because of what she felt like was the silence of God, which has been to me the most important story about her actually of all the stories. And I think the way I sort of landed that story was to say that that may actually have been a gift because she was not ministering to other people who felt hopeless and abandoned from above and from a position of spiritual privilege, but that she was alongside them as a sister in their suffering who deeply understood what it meant to feel loss and abandonment. Yeah. I mean, that is such an incredibly complex story to tell and you to know that this super saint, you know, lived despite she was faithful, despite her pain and her suffering is something that you've really given us in an incredible way. So as, as you've kid tested this book, have you been surprised by any reader reactions to any of these stories? One of the things I really like about it is that boys love this book. The myth, at least, is that it's hard to get boys to read anything and especially anything about the church. And boys love this book. So I actually, the day that it came out, happened to be the birthday of a young man who was turning 10 and was the nephew of a friend of mine. And she suggested that I give him a call to wish him happy birthday. And um, he had just been telling his mom, I need to find out how this guy dies. (laughs) (laughs) But he was also picking up. I think that the adventure pulls him in. I hope that they're also picking up some <laughs> other lessons along the way, maybe the broader lessons. <laughs> but one of the things I really love about child readers is that they are just so willing to go with a story and learn from it rather than critique it or insist that it couldn't happen. And I think that they will carry these stories with them in a different way because they get to read them when they're young, unlike the rest of us. Yeah, yeah nothing like a good martyr story blood and gore and lions. Right, right. (laughs) Well, Carrie, when when you look at stained glass representations of saints, you see a lot of white European faces from ancient times. Can you tell us a little of how you expanded this lineup to include Christians of other colors, cultures and countries, and who turned out to be a favorite, a saint with a, a rarely told life story. I know this was a challenge when I wrote Vintage Saints and Sinners to kind of go beyond the initial sort of cast of characters that I saw when I looked into saints. Sure. Diversity is a very high value for me, and I think it gives us strength to have people from different perspectives all looking at the same thing. But this book wasn't actually, it didn't require a lot of massaging to create diversity in it because the history really is diverse. But there also was some um, significant diversity in just among the most beloved saints. Even when you go back, I I think that those stained glass windows may not have accurately reflected the original complexions, right? So many of the early uh, saints are are Egyptian. St. Christopher, the patron saint of America, was a Canaanite, which means he would have been from the area that's now Israel, Palestine, Syria, and Jordan. Moses is strong, was an African. If you look at Felicity and Perpetua, Felicity was living in slavery and she was probably European or African. Augustine is African, you know, so there, I think, was quite a bit of cultural difference, even in the greatest hits collection of the saints. 
Yeah, I that's what to me the the illustrations by Nick Thornborough really bring out. Um of course we know that Augustine was from North Africa, but to see him pictured as an African, I mean yeah. it's it's just the illustrations are just incredible in this book. And I was thinking, just scanning through the book this morning and flipping through, and there's a picture of a saint I've never had not heard of this guy, Jean Baptiste Marie Vianney, uh-huh. uh, and he's sitting bolt upright in the bed. You know, his eyes are bugging out, and there's these weird eyeballs over his head. And it's then I read the story. He's terrorized by demons at midnight, and I just totally pulled me into the story. I had to find what is going on. Well, Carrie, who was the toughest saint for you to write about? And I mean more personally. And, you know, was there anybody that you just didn't like? Um, I don't think there are very many saints who are just totally unredeemable human beings. (laughs) (laughs) Usually they did something to admire, at least among sort of like the, the ones that we would have heard of. Most of the cuts that we made were because they were repetitive or didn't add up to a really strong story. So... You're home in your apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, you're in a pretty small space. If if you had to shelter in place with one of this cast of 70 saints, who would you choose and why? Um, well, I would probably be choosing. I'm very, very interested, as it sounds like you are, in creating sort of alternate communities, alternate Christian communities, where people find a way to be out in the world and deeply connected with other believers. So I would be really interested in talking with Ignatius about that or Philip Neri, both of whom started communities like that. Neither of them would probably be willing to shelter in place with me. <laughs> Um, but I also, my, my very favorite in the book is Joseph of Cupertino, who is a super interesting figure. And when I, I actually asked Nick if he could give me an illustration, that illustration or a copy of that illustration. You have, you have to tell that story. So Joseph of Cupertino just uncontrollably flies. Like whenever, whenever he hears the name of Jesus or something that reminds him of the name of Jesus, like if he sees a little lamb and he thinks the lamb of God, he just rises from the ground. And he does this, especially in situations where um, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. So when he, he comes in, I think the Spanish ambassador's wife is there and he looks up over her head and sees a holy statue and just <laughs> in the air over her head up to adore the statue. And what's super interesting about this story is that if you, this book is told in chronological order. So it sort of gives you a very interesting history of the church through its, some of its great personalities. But you also see that in the beginning, there is stuff that looks a little bit more like folktale than history. And as you drift towards modern history, you start having kind of like facts and figures. And we know that most of what happened to Joan of Arc, we have actually the court records of her trial and that kind of thing. But Joseph Cupertino is actually more contemporary with Joan of Arc than with Christopher, who is clearly a folktale. We don't know anything about him other than that he was named Christopher and was probably a Canaanite. So it's clear that this guy, Joseph of Cupertino, was locked up by the church authorities for most of his life for no crime other than not being able to control his levitation. (laughs) I'm I'm fascinated by that. (laughs) Yes, you have just, you are, you are a woman of my own heart because I I read that story too. And there's a wonderful painting of him, you know, flying. And, and I love the story. Like he, his superiors kept telling him like, Joseph, like, you've got to cut this out. It's getting ridiculous. And he, he just couldn't help himself. Or who was it? Martha? This French woman who tamed the dragon with, you know, she just like draped her rosary beads around the dragon's neck and saved the village. 
from this this fierce dragon. So many wonderful stories. I can see why children love this book, but I just have to say I, I love it too, and I'm so excited to share it. So thank you for telling me the stories of your saints and Carrie for telling us about your beautiful new book, Stories of the Saints, Bold and Inspiring Tales of Adventure, Grace and Courage. It's so great to speak with you. It's wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today for my talk with Carrie Wallace, author of Stories of the Saints. There are many stories yet to tell, so I hope you'll come back when the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast returns for season two this fall. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville here at the University of Virginia. I'd love to hear from you. Come by my website, KarenWrightMarsh.com. You'll find more about the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast, get show notes, and learn about the book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. Download free printable study guides for your small group or just for yourself and keep the conversation going. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chen. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections.